You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As we come closer to Christmas, um, I wonder what words come into your mind. Um, For me, I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to a holiday. I'm looking forward to seeing friends, family, just taking a little bit of a break, um, annual leave, whatnot. But I want to show you guys today that the key to Christmas in Luke's narrative here, as we approach Christmas, is humility. Um, So um, if you keep your Bibles open, we'll um, be unpacking this passage together. Um, How about I pray first? Heavenly Father, um, we ask that you would humble us today um, to sit under your word, um, to hear your voice, um, and be transformed. Um, So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We all love a good rags-to-riches story. Say what you want about Oprah Winfrey. Her story is incredible. Um, Oprah was born into poverty in America, Um, She was born to a housemaid, a coal miner. She was so poor, she used to have to make dresses out of potato sacks. Can you imagine the other children making fun of you for that? She was abused as a young child. Oprah moved away um, from her family to Tennessee, where she um, landed a radio job, actually, in high school. And by 19 years old, Oprah was already the anchor for the local evening news where she would eventually find herself working in daytime TV. But so successful was Oprah on daytime TV, she ended up launching her own show called The Oprah Winfrey Show. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, And in its first year, it made $125 million. Oprah became the first African-American billionaire who was a female, and she now has a net worth of roughly $2.7 billion US dollars. This is the girl that wore potato sacks as a dress. So she is your quintessential rags-to-riches story, someone who rises from poverty to wealth, from obscurity to heights of fame and fortune. There are many stories like this. It is incredibly inspiring. But the question now is, now these people like her have reached their fame, have reached fortune, Will they be able to remain humble? As I read lots of biographies of these people who have gone from rags to riches, often the sentiment is the same. You can do it. With a bit of hard work, with a bit of determination, you can be like me, they say. Often we see more self-empowerment than we do humility as a response to incredible blessing. We all know that humility is a very rare quality in our culture nowadays that celebrates pride, that celebrates strength. So today I'm, I, I recognize that I'm preaching even more to myself than I may be to all of you because pride remains one of my deepest set struggles. But today we actually see a very different type of rags-to-riches story. This time, this story is marked by humility. 
And we're going to see that Luke records all these events leading up to Jesus' birth to show the manner in which Christ will come into the world. These events leading up to Christ's birth will set the trajectory for Christ's future ministry, which will also be marked by humility. So today I want to talk about three things, the joy of humility, the posture of humility, and the challenge of humility. So firstly, the surprising joy of humility. Because right before this passage, Mary has been given shocking news. An angel says, Mary will give birth to the Son of God. This is what you saw last week. And remember, Mary is a virgin. So when an angel shows up to your doorstep telling you that you're pregnant, it throws off your life plans a little bit, right? It throws off your plans for marriage for her. It throws off her future. So it troubles Mary, rightly so. But in humility, in verse 38, last week, Mary simply trusts in the word of God. This is what she says. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And so we see from the outset, Mary's humility is characterized by a simple trust in the word of God, in spite of this life-altering news. And what begins to dawn on Mary is the privilege of being the mother of God. Of Jesus, the Lord Himself. Remember, Israel had been waiting 700 years for God to come and deliver His people. So, by society standards, Mary is a nobody, but she is chosen by God for a very special role in history. It is your quintessential rags to riches story. So, now here we pick up from verse 39 in our passage where Mary goes to meet Elizabeth. These Two mums now sharing stories about their children, their own miraculous pregnancies. Now, I don't know how this normally goes in your families, in your friendship circles, when two mums start comparing notes on their kids. Um, But what I've found, it can turn a little bit competitive. So they ask, what ATAR score did your son get for VCE? Oh, not bad. Not bad. What grade did your daughter get up to in piano? Elmas? It's okay. You mean she only got a half scholarship? All right. Okay. Well, how much more here with these two miracle children? Remember, Elizabeth's pregnancy, it is a miracle too. Remember, she was completely barren. She could not have kids. But God enables her to get pregnant and lifts her shame in verse 25. And more than that, this child she bears is so special that he will prepare the way of the Lord himself. This is John the Baptist, right? But look at what happens when Mary visits Elizabeth. Mary greets Elizabeth, and immediately in verse 41, the baby inside Elizabeth leaps. We see in verse 44, he leaps for joy. So this is already John the Baptist already celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus. We see that John is so humble here that even as a fetus, he knows he ain't the main event. He leaps for joy, giving glory to Jesus while he is still in the womb. Um, We we saw back in verse 15 that the angel said that John would be filled with the Spirit, even in the womb. And so this promise comes to pass here. The Spirit enables John to recognize that he is meeting his Lord in utero. So John, he's recognizing his place in the story, that he's only a preparer at this stage, that he is the person that will announce the coming of this Savior. 
So humility here, he understands, he embraces that he is not the center of the universe. He points to Jesus. It's kind of weird, isn't it, taking life lessons from a fetus? But this fetus gets it. It's pretty good. (laughs) But also look at Elizabeth's reaction, verse 41. Elizabeth, she too filled with the Spirit. Then she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth talks nothing about her own miracle. The first words from her mouth are entirely about Mary and her child. Mary, blessed are you among women, she says. Notice the repetition here of blessed, blessed in this passage. And look at what she considers blessed in verse 45. It is Mary's simple, humble faith in God's promises. We see Mary's also blessed among women because she's been given this unique role of bearing the child who would bring salvation to the world. See, Elizabeth is able to celebrate Mary's blessing. She doesn't do it in a bitter way. She doesn't do it in a way that's comparing herself to Mary. But she's doing it in a way that is able to truly celebrate, is able to truly derive joy from the blessings of others. It reflects the simple joy of humility. It is not thinking at all about herself, but it is focusing, it is celebrating the joys of others. Can you see here how our joy increases when we can celebrate the successes and joys and blessings of other people around us? Can you see how pride could have stripped away this joy when we are unable to celebrate the good things to people that happen around us? Um, There's this really good little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Um, You might have read it. And this is what Keller writes. Um, He says, If we were to meet a truly humble person, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem totally interested in us. Because, Keller says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking myself more, not thinking of myself less, but it is thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. This is the freedom of humility. Um, I remember how happy I was when I got my very first pay rise at work. I don't know if you've ever got a pay rise before, but it is like the best. Um, And I remember I was so overjoyed, I thought, wow, this firm values me as a person. I feel affirmed right now, right? I was so happy until I realized the pay rise all my other friends got. The firm valued them $2,000 more. And instantly, all the joy that I had just minutes before was stripped away. Why? Because I was acting out of pride, not humility. I was not able to celebrate my own joy. I was not able to certainly celebrate their joy. Because joy comes when we don't need to constantly compare ourselves to the people around us. Joy comes when we can celebrate the successes and the blessings that other people receive. The simple joy of humility. And we see here that not only are Elizabeth's words, are they humble, but we see that they are prophetic. Um, In verse 40, Elizabeth, she's filled with the Spirit, which happens in the Old Testament to prophets who would declare the Word of God. 
And now Elizabeth, she declares the significance of this child because she knows this child is not just some special kid. But verse 43, this child is also her Lord. She's blown away by the joy now of witnessing God fulfill his promises of salvation for her through his servant Mary. It's the simple, surprising joy of humility. Second, we see the posture of humility because we see that Elizabeth can't stop praising Mary, cannot stop praising her child. And if there's any time now for Mary to sit back and think to herself, yeah, I am blessed. I am a great woman. She is the rags to riches story. Roman Catholics, some even take it further. They elevate Mary to the status of co-redeemer with Christ. They see her as playing this very intercessory role between us and God. Maybe this is the image of uh, Mary that might, might have come to our heads when we were kids. But the picture that Luke paints is very different. Because look at what Mary does in verse 46 in response to this incredible blessing. Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She draws no attention to herself, but her soul instantly, it praises, it magnifies the Lord. Luke's picture of Mary here is so different. She recognizes even in her humble condition that God is doing something powerful through her now. He's bringing a worldwide salvation through this child she will bear. So she puts all the attention on God, and in humility, she counts herself nothing. And remember, in the eyes of the world, she is a nothing. She's probably still a child. Some think she might even be as young as 12 to 14 years old. Mary's probably illiterate. She's not from any special tribe. She's not from any special family. There's nothing about her status. There's nothing about her ability that is setting her apart for this role as the mother of God. Mary recognizes that it's all of her. It is, it is all of God, sorry. It is none of her. You know, sometimes it's very hard for us to recognize that we are nothing because society leads us to believe that we have earned everything we have right now. You know, deep down, um, sometimes I think, yeah, maybe I've just worked a little bit harder than everyone else to get to where I've got to. But in fact, our humble condition is not so different to Mary. Because like Mary, everything we have is God's. Even the things we're good at, right? We, we might be hardworking, not because we're better than anyone else, but because we've received an education by the grace of God. We have parental influences in our life who have instilled these values in us. You know what? We might think that we don't lash out in anger like those people out there that cannot control themselves. But we need to realize that God gifted us a spirit of self-control. He's given you role models into his life. He's given you a church that can model what godly behavior looks like. Our character, everything you have, everything you own, a blessing from God. You did not choose your parents. You did not choose what part of the world you would be born in right now. You did not even choose your DNA because God has given you everything out of his grace. Like Mary, we are nothings. 
but we are blessed by God in every way. That's what humility is. So it's one thing for Mary to recognize her humble condition, but it's also another thing here to, for Mary to acknowledge how exceedingly blessed she is by God. This is not a moment for self-pity, pushing yourself low, but it is a moment for exceeding joy through her nothingness. Look at verse 48. She says, Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and His name is holy. So God chose this woman, Mary, for no other reason than to bless her, than to bring forth His glory through her. And because of this blessing now, she is intimately involved in God's big plans of salvation. So we see Mary's marveling, not in her ability, not in who she is, but in the grace of the Lord that has been extended to her. You know, Mary, she's, she's not just heard this grace, she's experienced this grace in an intimate way. She's trusted in the promises of God, and now she is witnessing how God is faithful, how He's been merciful to all these promises. So humility here remembers, it glorifies God by remembering, by experiencing God's grace in our weakness. I want you to think back to the time, what your life was like before God, how God has brought you now into his family here, how he's given you this community who loves you, how he's given the Lord Jesus to save you from your sin, how he's changed your desires, how he's given you a hope for a future beyond the grave. Or maybe you can't even remember a time when you didn't know, when you didn't love Jesus. Praise God for his faithfulness in keeping you all of these years. Or maybe just think back to the very many small things that God does for you every day. Um, For me this year, maybe like some of you, moving church is a hard thing to do. And as I moved church this year, we went from something very familiar to something a little bit more uncertain where we didn't know anyone. And so through that time, I actually saw God really come through for us in very small ways, but were very meaningful. And so I was grateful for every good conversation, every person that would come up and just say hello, every person that would invite us out for lunch, for dinner, every person that just would extend their hand of welcome to us. It was just in these moments that made me realize and remember God has blessed us in every way, big and small. It speaks to God's faithfulness who is reminding us that He is the Mighty One, that He has done great things for me. His name is holy. I suspect that sometimes why we lack humility is because we are very poor at reflecting. So I encourage you, write a journal, make a journal, even if it's on your phone. Write down things that God does for you or that recalls to your mind as they happen. And then each month look back Remember what God has done for you. I remember doing this um, lots of times many years ago, looking back at my diary, my dear diaries, and I thought, wow, God is coming through for me every day. I'm just not reflecting. I'm just not thinking back and remembering. We're so stuck in our world today. You see, humility is not just considering our low position, but it is remembering that we are blessed by God. Aren't we rags to riches like Mary? And so out of this gratitude now, we start asking different questions of ourselves, right? So the posture of humility now says, not what do I stand to gain, what do I stand to lose from doing this, 
but actually, what can I give? Humility doesn't ask what other people will always think of me, but how can I make God look great? Humility doesn't ask what abilities we lack, what ways God hasn't blessed us, but how can I contribute in the way that God has gifted me, in the way that God has shaped me? I remember when I used to work um, in the city as a graduate, um, I I thought, you know, from the very beginning, you might have had this, I thought I was going to change the world. I'd watched too many seasons of Suits. And so I thought, you know, I'd be put on these cases, I'd be constructing all these brilliant arguments, I'd be winning lawsuits. And actually, um, on my first kind of week or so, my first case, um, my boss came to me, right? He came to me, and I thought to myself, yeah, this is my time. And so he called me close. He said, Devin, I need your help. I said, I'm here. I'm here. He said, Devin, flat white, one sugar. (laughs) That was my first year. Billing, photocopying, scanning, more billing. The only hope I had that in two years' time, I would get that promotion, I would never have to do that again. I would give it to those suckers, those new graduates, right? And then I went to church that week. And at church, um, some of you know her, um, there's a pretty prominent partner in a law firm in Melbourne at our church. She's probably someone that I'd hoped to be in about 15 years. And this partner of a law firm, what I noticed about her is that every Sunday, she would sweep the church floor. As people would enjoy their coffees, maybe like you guys do in the foyer, as you enjoy your food, she would sweep around people's legs, She would sweep under the chairs. She would do it with a smile on her face. Why would someone, by society's standards, so powerful through the week, could order any coffee they wanted? Why would a person like that stoop to their knees on a Sunday and clean the church? It's because, like Mary, she counts herself as nothing. But she counts herself as incredibly blessed by the Lord in every way. Humility frees us to serve in any way we can for the glory of God. That is the freedom of humility. Mary realizes she is not the center of the universe. God is. He is the mighty one. His name is holy. Christmas is the time here where God comes to rescue us from our sins. It is not a time for self-absorption. Mary magnifies the Lord because of this coming salvation. This is the attitude we need to imbibe as a church, whether it's in our work, whether it's in our home. There is no task that is beneath you, right? Whether it's in work, whether it's in the church. If it means God is magnified, that is what humility is. Takes the pressure off us, though, because now we can just try our best from God, for God, with all the strengths, with all the weaknesses you have. Why? Because my soul magnifies the Lord, says Mary. It's not about her. Lastly, we see the challenge of humility. Notice that from verse 50, Mary moves from a very personal response to what God has done for her. Now she addresses God's people in general. She says in verse 50, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. This blessing is not just for Mary, right? It is for us too. God's mercy extends to everyone that would fear him, that would trust in him. 
God's mercy here means helping the helpless. He saves those who cannot save themselves. But in order to receive God's mercy, it's the same. We need to humble ourselves. And so Mary here talks about the challenge of humility, that God extends mercy to the humble, but he will bring down those who are proud. So I want you to see in the text the reversals occurring in this section. Verse 50, God's mercy on those who fear him, but he scatters the proud. Verse 52, he topples the mighty from their thrones, but he exalts the lowly. Verse 53, he satisfies the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends away empty. And in verse 54, we see that this is the same God who works the same way all the way through Israel's history. He is constantly, over history, bringing down the powerful. He is always exalting the weak. And as we think about God's people, um, Israel, in the Old Testament we realize that they have generally been characterized by weakness. So if you think back, Israel begins as a small family in Abraham, starts growing in size, but then quickly enslaved in Egypt. God then dramatically rescues them from Egypt. Now they have no home. They wander the desert 40 years. Even once they have a kingdom, always attacked. God says to them in Deuteronomy 7 that he did not set his affection Uh, on them or choose Israel. They didn't choose them because of their greatness, but because they were the fewest. They were the fewest of all people. And even then, as soon as Israel starts growing in strength, they are divided very, very quickly. They crumble. They are exiled into foreign nations. And so at the time of Mary's song, Israel are still under Roman occupation, right? They don't have a king. They don't have a land. So Israel... God's people, they know better than anyone that God is always lifting up the weak. He is always scattering the proud. In fact, it's so common. Mary's song is not even new. We see that Mary's song essentially mirrors Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah praises God for lifting up the lowly, for bringing down the proud, because God's people are singing the same anthem all the way through Scripture. um, Notice here that verse 51 to 54, they're all in the past tense. So they refer to what God has done in the past, right? But also they refer to what God will do in the future. Mary is proclaiming here that these things are so certain, it's like they have already happened. And so this is the challenge. We know the certainty for us if we proudly think we don't need God. But... The world keeps tempting us to run in that direction. So the world will tell you, yes, you need to be independent. We need to be rich. We need to be powerful. You need to have a lot of friends. You need to be popular. The world will tell you there's something wrong with you if you don't have enough money for a deposit, if you're not getting that promotion at work. But look at what God says about power. Look at what he says about riches. God is constantly scattering the proud. He's toppling the mighty. He's sending the rich away empty. This doesn't mean that we embrace a poverty theology, that we have to become poor now. But he's saying here that if these are the things that we pursue in life, if these are the things that will define your identity, 
then ultimately they will come to nothing. Because these things, though they can be good things, they are building an independence. They can build a prideful arrogance against the mercy of God. But he invites us that if we come with an empty hand, if we embrace our weakness before God, he will always give mercy. That's why the the most humble thing you can do is place your trust in Christ, is to place your faith in God, because inherently faith is the declaration that you cannot do things yourself. Humble faith is leaning on God's power to save, not your own. So if you're here today, if you are not a Christian, God is inviting you now to humble yourself, to place your faith in Jesus, who will always extend mercy. Mary is the model example here. She is the model of rags to riches gone right. She maintains her humility in in spite of this blessing, and this humility now paves the way for the coming of her child. But you see, her humility here is only a dim reflection of the humility her child will bear. Because Jesus' humility is not seen through uh, rags to riches, But Christmas is also a story of riches to rags. So Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, though he was God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied him. He gave away his riches, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. How much lower could he go for you? And because of his humility, God exalts him now to the right hand, bearing the name above all names. Why? Because God exalts the humble. He brings down the proud. 2 Corinthians 8 says, Jesus, though he was rich for our sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is the story of Christmas. Christmas is a story of rags to riches in Mary. It is also a story of riches to rags in Christ. That is the gospel message. And so Christ humbles himself in death to lift us up to life. So now, it means that whatever story we receive in the future, whether, yes, we go from rags to riches, whether it's riches to rags, or in Adam's case, rags to more rags, we can all share Mary's humility. It doesn't matter about our legacy. It doesn't matter what mark we will leave on this earth. Like like Mary, our joy comes from pointing to the greater story of God's mercy through Christ, who was so humble for you, he went from riches to rags. What other God has a heart like this? So now it doesn't matter if your story is not that special. It doesn't matter if you don't end up changing the world, if no one remembers who you are when you leave this earth. Because your story is caught up in a much greater story of God's mercy in Christ, all the way from Abraham. So now let's invite ourselves to humble ourselves, free ourselves from the bondage to pride. Humility now frees us to magnify, to serve God in any way that our lives can constantly point to the Lord who is sitting at the very center of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
this great story of rags to riches in Mary. Thank you for her humility. Lord, would this teach us how to be humble today? Lord, would we come to you empty-handed, placing our trust in you who saves? Father, we ask that you would humble us how we relate to each other as well. Lord, would we be willing to do the jobs that no one is willing to do? Lord, would you show us that our stories are just caught up in yours so that we can spend our lives magnifying the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.